This podcast contains adult language and mature themes, which may not be suitable for all listeners. So listen at your own fucking risk. Welcome to Essential NPCs, the podcast where we sample some of the best and possibly some of the worst tabletop RPGs. I'm Tommy. And I'm Addie. And you're listening to Series 9, Episode 6, Drifting East. We're fresh out of new announcements for you guys, so we're going to move on into Words with a GM. Hello. Hello, GM. Hello. This Words with a GM is about Series 9, Episode 5, The Stuff of Legends. And who boy, was there some legendary stuff, if I do say so myself. It was a very fun episode. (laughs) (laughs) In this episode, we get our first instance of a showdown. Uh, It is a special kind of combat where uh, two opponents square off against each other in the ultimate test of nerves, will, and speed. It's a mechanic that is specific and I think unique to manifest. Uh, and I know a lot of people are interested to hear about how it works. Uh, so I thought that's what we would talk about today. Yeah. Well, obviously when you think about Westerns, you inevitably think about two people staring each other down and then quick drawing on each other and, and, you know, the, the faster gun lives. And so when I was putting this game together, I knew I, I knew for a fact I needed there to be a specific skill called quick draw, which could be used in a special type of scenario, uh, different from just using your normal ranged weapon skill. So break it down for us. How does this whole thing start? Well, as we saw in the last episode, one character initiates a showdown by issuing a challenge. Uh, This uses, again, another specific skill that's unique to quick draw combat. They roll challenge against the opponent, and uh, whoever comes out on top of that might get some bonuses to their role in in the subsequent showdown. The loser of the challenge gets a chance to concede. Now, when you concede a challenge, uh, you manage to avoid the very deadly risks of a showdown, but something else happens. So when a when a character concedes, all players involved and the GM work together to come up with what happens next, Uh, something that is beneficial to the character who who won the challenge. Um, It could be anything from, you know, running a person out of town or making them lay down arms and go go away peacefully uh, or anything along those lines. Um, the only thing that doesn't happen when someone concedes a quick draw is they get shot. They, they manage to avoid getting shot if they back down from the challenge. Now, if there's no concession, you move from the challenge into the actual showdown. Uh, at that point, both characters involved in the showdown uh, choose what skill they want to roll. Uh, they can roll a defense test if they just kind of want to duck and cover and try to avoid being shot. Um, they can roll their normal ranged weapon skill if they want to just try and be a little faster than the other person and cover their own ass. But if they choose to roll the quick draw skill specifically, their damage is calculated in a unique way that is very deadly, as we saw in the last episode. So to give you a sense of that, a normal weapon has a stat called power, uh, which determines how much damage each of their net successes deals on an attack roll. 
and it also has a stat called accuracy, which limits how many net successes you're allowed to count when calculating damage. So if you have a weapon with two accuracy and five power and you got three net hits, you would only be able to deal 10 damage to your opponent because you could only count your two net hits due to your two accuracy. When using the quick draw skill in a showdown, your weapon's accuracy does not impose a limit on how many net successes you can count. You can count as many successes as you get over your opponent. There's no end to it. Additionally, the damage you deal per net success is not just based on the power. It's actually based on the power plus the accuracy. So Juliet, with the guns she currently possesses and the talents she currently has, her weapons have five power and four accuracy. So when calculating quick draw damage, that means every net success she gets over her opponent does nine damage. So with five net successes on Charlie Walden, we get to see Juliet deal 45 damage in a single attack. And to give you a sense of how much overkill that truly is... Characters in manifests have effectively two sets of hit points. They have their true hit points and then they have their armor points, uh, boxes of damage that get checked off instead of their hit points. Um, the better your armor, the more armor points you have. And before talents or any special abilities, the heaviest armor you can have gives you 12 armor points and the highest durability stat will give you 20 hit points. That means before any special high level talents or anything, the max damage a character can take is 32 damage. And just in case you were wondering, Charlie Walden was not wearing the heaviest possible armor and does not have the highest possible durability. Uh, so he was very, very shot dead. But what you can see with this is that quick draw is a cool, tense moment where you're literally putting your character's life on the line to take out an enemy in a single role. Uh, because if that role goes bad, it's entirely likely that so much damage is piled up on your character that you cannot survive. The challenge skill and the quick draw skill were things that I put into manifest at the very, very beginning. It was one of the first things I figured out. I may have even started figuring it out before I figured out proper combat and initiative. It felt that important to the setting for there to be mechanics behind that super quintessential Western moment. And hopefully you could see in the last episode just how it can really play out and how cool those moments can be. Yeah, when I first heard about quick draw and, and being a showdown expert and all that, I knew instantly that was going to be my first character. I had to try it out. And it is so fun playing Juliet. And those moments, I'm always like having like a mild anxiety attack because I don't know if it's the last role I'm ever going to have for Juliet. She's super leveled up now uh, and she has a bunch of talents that I've invested uh, all of her points into uh, helping her survive and be really great at quick draw. But uh, there's always that chance that it is the last role that I will be making with a very beloved character. Uh, but I would not give it up for anything. But so many cool things happened in this episode. Uh, it really felt like we hit our stride. So besides the obvious showdown uh what was your favorite part speaking of characters that have 
died. Um, I once upon a time had a character uh, be absolutely murdered by an augurino. And so when it started to appear and the ground was rumbling and then it came out of the earth, I was like, oh no, I can't have Juliet die to this. And the scene with Badlands Pete and Clayton just like taking on the augurino is just super epic and was so much fun. I love that like Badlands Pete like punches an augurino of like the scariest creature around to me uh, in the face and then climbs on top of it like as if it's just like a steer or something is like so bonkers and legendary. I just oh my heart swells just thinking about that augurino getting what's coming to him and then also sending it after the Walden gang. <laughs> yeah you can obviously see where the legends of Badlands Pete come from with him pulling those kind of antics. I also love how Pete and Clayton used the Augurino in an interesting way. Instead of just the standard, oh, well, let's just shoot the thing down until it's out of hit points. They came up with a clever solution that felt really, really true to their characters. You know, Clayton's affinity for animals and love for animal life of all shapes and sizes and Pete's insatiable need to just be epic. <laughs> <laughs> so you know my two favorite moments. Uh, what was your favorite moment? My favorite part was a small little moment that happened at the very, very end of the episode. And that was Clayton's decision to put the handcuffs back on Roy. I kind of had a little bit of a worry that Roy and Clayton were just going to get along super happy and forget all about the whole outlaw and bounty hunter uh version of will they won't they <laughs> and covert had me going for a moment that clayton had had already made up his mind that he was just gonna not bring roy in and uh, uh it was really interesting seeing him just learn a little bit more about juliet and think a little bit more on it and then just make that decision right at the end to be like well sorry roy and i was like yes more party tension <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cause I mean, come on, how interesting is it to shoot the shit with your captor? <laughs> and I guess the only way to find out is to keep listening to the campaign. So let's see what happens next and move on in to series nine, episode six, Drifting East. Enjoy. Greetings. I'm Clayton Sawyer. You may not have heard of me, but I'm one of the best bounty hunters in the Badlands. I got a few advantages, you see. First is Sugar, Maache, and even though I only found her a few years back, my best friend. She was the runner for herd and probably couldn't keep up and was cast out, and I know how that feels. So me and her bonded, and she grew up right with me stepping in as her daddy. The second edge I got, hunting bounties, is that I'm illuminated, and my abilities grant me an advantage that most of the nastiest outlaws ever got bountied can't compete with. The thing about being illuminated is that those same abilities that give me all those powers and advantages are also unsubtle to most folk. They can understand a gun or a knife, but they can't quite figure the threat someone like me might be to them. That's why me and Suge are always moving, hunting, and on to the next bounty, leaving people behind before they can make us get. One day, me and Suge are going to pull in a big bounty, and we'll make enough to settle into our own homestead we can be ourselves and ain't nobody gonna try to drive us away again. We'll wrestle cattle, do some farming, and live a quiet life on our own little slice of the Badlands. Howdy folks, name's Roy Hampton. Now I know what you're thinking. How did such a dashing young man come to be robbing you today? Well, 
You get to handing over your spurs, and I'll tell you what's what. I grew up in a factory town with my mamas Helen and Kate. Helen was a kind, quiet lady, kept her head down to raise me best as she could. But Mama Kate, she was the kind of woman who couldn't help but stand up for us, even when we weren't asking. In the city, there's two kinds of folks. The family, and people paying the family. And Mama Kate wasn't about to be either. Problem is, when you're standing up to a planetary crime syndicate, you and yours are liable to end up in the dirt. So when the Jimmies came to our home, my mamas held them off long enough for me to escape. After that, thieving wasn't a choice. It was survival. Now, miss, you ain't gonna get to that holdout before I loose this arrow. Just sit tight. We're almost through. See, turns out I got a knack for this life. Key is to always have the advantage. Never pick a fair fight. Second trick is to rob folks that can afford to lose it. And there ain't nobody richer than the family. There was a time I was hitting the family so hard I was taking enough spurs to live like a king. Trouble is, family ain't inclined to let robbery of that magnitude slide. Hence the 800 spur bounty on my head. Now I know y'all are feeling a few spurs short, but look on the bright side. Next time you throw a fancy shindig, you can tell the story of the time you were robbed by Roy Hampton, legendary outlaw. Y'all have a nice day now. Howdy. Folks around here call me Badlands Pete. You might have heard some tales about me. About how I use a rattler as a lasso, or how I ride a ball-tailed cat. Maybe you heard the one about how I punched the peak off of the tallest mountain of Manifest. <laughs> now, I ain't saying those stories are true. But I, I ain't saying they ain't. See, when I was a youngin', my parents decided the factory town life was getting to be too much factory and not enough town. So they packed us up and headed toward the freedom of the Badlands. Not too long after we crossed into the wilds, I wandered off after a working pup, my parents up, and left me behind. It was alright, because that pup's pack only well, took me in. It raised me, taught me how to be a survivor, just like them. And my brother Tommy, I'm sorry, Thomas, well, he came looking for me years later. He took me back to the big city with him, cleaned me up, and reminded me how to speak, and tried to help me back into civilized life. But I reckon after 20 years in the wild, the wild's in you for good. And it kept calling me. Before long, I, I found myself headed back to where I knew was home. Now I travel the Badlands, and folks can't seem to help but tell another story about me everywhere I go. You're welcome to come along, see if I live up to the legend. Cause you see, the Badlands are my home. I reckon I ain't leaving them again anytime soon. My name is Juliet Hunt, and I've been a drifter nearly my whole life. My parents were killed by bandits when I was far too young. I only survived because a gunslinger named Avery came along and rescued me. Being that I was an orphan, he took me under his wing and taught me to shoot like him. Passed on the craft, like a father to a daughter. After Avery died, I drifted alone for a time, until happenstance brought me to Cyrus Finch. He's loud, flashy, full of cockamamie ideas, and occasionally a criminal. And I, I ain't any of those things. We ended up drifting together a long while, and gotten to more than a few situations we never saw coming, including getting hitched. Like all drifters that live past their prime, we eventually hung up our irons and we settled down in a nice little town in the Badlands. 
Now, I ain't so retired that I won't oblige somebody who's in desperate need of a bullet. And Cyrus has to sate his itch to run a grift from time to time. But by our standards, it's a quiet kind of life. For a long while, it was a pleasant life. Until Cyrus up and disappeared without a word. Now, he ain't the most communicative individual, but I just got this gut feeling that something ain't right, and Avery taught me better than to ignore my gut. So I've closed up shop, took up my irons, and set out drifting again. My Cyrus is out there somewhere, and I'm gonna find him. And when I do, oh boy, he better be in need of saving. Otherwise, he's in trouble. The last time we left our drifters, they had gone west into the heart of the Badlands as they chased after the Walden Brothers gang, who had kidnapped the prominent garden figure of Eliza Valancourt. They confronted the Walden brothers. Roy manipulated Charlie Walden into a challenging Juliet to a quick draw. And uh, that w- turned out to be a fatal mistake for Charlie Walden as he was no match for the gunslinger. After seeing his brother shot down, Harry Walden fired a grenade at our heroes, and that grenade turned out to be the explosion that broke the camel's back when it came to drawing the attention of a large subterranean creature known as an augurino. This gigantic, 60-foot-long insectoid uh, burst out of the ground, breaking up the fight, sending the Walden gang running, and turned its attention to the four drifters and the left-behind captive of Eliza Valancourt. Badlands Pete sprung to action and lassoed that giant creature, jumped on it, and with the help of Clayton, they managed to uh, wrangle that thing into chasing after the Walden gang, while the four drifters and the rescued Eliza Valancourt made their way east back towards the settlement of Waypoint, also known as the Drifter Capital of Manifest. And, incidentally, the original destination of all these characters on the high-speed rail they got aboard on in Episode 1. The four of you are breaking down your camp in the morning, uh, just a couple hours out of Waypoint. Roy, you have been re-handcuffed by Clayton Sawyer, much to your and Eliza's disappointment. Uh, (laughs) And you guys... Make your way into town, I assume? Yeah, I'd like to drop Sadie off at the um, stables, the DeCastro stables. Uh, Yeah, the town of Waypoint is rather large as far as the settlement goes. Um, It has a few main roads that cross each other. And the western side of Waypoint is actually elevated above the eastern side. And just to the east of Waypoint, uh, it starts to become mountainous terrain as it is right up against the eastern border mountains of the Badlands. The DeCastro family stables lies on the southern end of Waypoint. It is a family-owned business. Uh, Juliet, you know, owned by Dalton and Zachariah uh, DeCastro. Uh, The stables, uh, like most towns on Manifest, operate as part animal care and part vehicle repair shop. And in the DeCastro family stables, this is readily apparent. The building itself is wide, and one half of it is designed to stable various animals, and the other half is more like a garage with sophisticated modifications to work on vehicles. 
Uh, and then there's a large field to the back of the DeCastro stables that is well-maintained and actually has a few gravel paths leading, leading to large gravel parking lots for various vehicles. Uh, so you can easily uh, go up to the DeCastro stables and drop Sadie off if that's what you want to do. Uh, it is. Um, so I, I do and, uh, and uh, check her in and, and give him a spur for the down payment of however long uh, uh, I end up stabling her there. Uh, yep, yeah. uh, Zachariah is the is the decaster that looks after the uh, after the animals. He takes your spur, nods to you. Um, he's a he's a handsome gentleman with graying blonde hair, uh, and he looks up uh, at Sugar uh, where uh, Clayton is perched, and uh, kind of s- grins and goes, "That's a hell of a beast, there, sir." Thank you. Say thank you, Sugar. <laughs> And uh, very, very calmly and casually, Zachariah approaches Sugar, reaches out a hand, and she, like, gives him a lick on the hand. And uh, he goes, you going to be stabling her uh, here as well? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I'm afraid this is the last bird of my name at the moment. Here, uh, this one's on me. How much do you need? Zachariah kind of grins and goes, actually, uh, uh, just one spur, same as the horse. And he reaches his hand out to Badlands Pete. I, uh, I'll hand him a spur. Uh, we'll just, uh, settle up a, a bill if you end up staying for an extended period of time. Uh, come on now. And, uh, he, uh, kind of clicks his tongue and, uh, both Sadie and, um, Sugar move to follow him into the barn. Be good, Sugar. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. I appreciate that. Sure thing. I mean, figured she, she saved my life. The least I could do is put her up for a couple nights. Uh, Eliza, uh, looks around and says, so does anyone know where the clinic is? I mean, I, I may like to tease Victor from time to time, but I, I do care for him. Uh, yeah, it's over this way. Uh, and you guys begin walking north up the, uh, strip, left and right, different businesses of note, uh, and some residences. Uh, you get to a, uh, cross street, uh, continues north towards, uh, the main square of town. You can see, uh, the LRC tower and the train station, uh, off in the distance. Uh, and then to your left, there's a hill going up, uh, to, uh, connecting this area to the next main strip of waypoint, the mayor's office and the sheriff's office up there visible from your position. And to your right, it kind of slopes a little, a little more downhill before leveling out into like a cul-de-sac with a bunch of different homes. And, uh, right there on that corner is the O'Donovan first aid and clinic. Uh, it's a small, relatively unremarkable building. The outside is just plain. It's got the sign kind of painted in an old chipping paint. Uh, and you guys walk in there. We do. The main room has an adjustable, uh, uh, chair that can actually be, uh, changed to a table setting, uh, which is what it actually is at, at this moment. No patient on it. Um, but there is a man in the room, a rather old man, probably reaching it up in his mid seventies or eighties. Uh, he is restocking, um, one of the many cabinets and drawers that line nearly every inch of the wall. Uh, and he's standing next to a large deep sink, uh, that breaks up the cluttered countertop of this operating room. Maybe he turns to you, sizes you up and down and goes, Hey, what do you want? We're looking for a patient of yours. Uh, Victor Davies. Uh, yeah, the one who's tight-lipped about what he, where he's from and whatnot. Yeah, shot in the gut. Came in here with a bunch of uh, freeloading refugees, yeah? Something like that. 
Uh, well, you ask me, uh, mayor's lapping up their story a little bit too, uh, too hastily. I think we should check them out and see if that train's up there. Otherwise, people getting free service and free help uh, just for being able to tell a good lie. And at that, uh, Eliza steps in and says, You listen here, sir. Mr. Davies is a good friend of mine. Is he here? Is he okay? If you harmed a hair on his head, he goes, All right, all right, all right. Jesus, he's just in the other room, uh, recovering. He's patched up. I did a good job, I might add. Not that anyone cares. Everyone just comes in here and expects everything to be hunky-dory every single time. It's not easy, you know. I'm basically doing magic out here in the Badlands. Well, come on, I'll take you into the waiting room before you bite my ear off. <laughs> and uh, he leads you to the only other door in the room, which opens up into a, a small kind of uh, recovery room uh, with just four beds and a couple uh, a couple devices on the wall to monitor patients. And laying on one of those beds, uh, kind of propped up on some pillows, is uh, Victor Davies, looking markedly better than the last time you saw him. And his face lights up when you, wa- when you walk in. And immediately Eliza rushes forward. Uh, uh, she doesn't like give him a hug or anything, but she does like uh, get up right to his his table side and goes, "Victor, are are you okay?" And he like nods and goes, "Yes, I'm. I'm just glad to see uh, you made it back. Thank you, all four of you. Honestly, Corsa made your promise. Well, I appreciate it." Eliza goes, "And Victor, we should compensate them for putting their lives on their line and rescuing me from those those bandits. They." They were horrible. They, I don't know what their plan was, but they tied me to the back of a motorcycle and drove all night uh, uh, through dangerous terrain. There was an augurino. I've read about them in books, but I've never seen one in person. Let me tell you, I never want to again. And he looks like shocked and looks around and, she go, and he goes, uh, yeah, uh, of, yes, of, of course. We only have so many travel funds left for us to secure a trip back into the garden. What with the high-speed rails still being down for maintenance? Um, but... Uh, surely I can spare 80 spurs, 20 for each of you. Oh, uh, well, if you insist, uh, I don't want to be rude. Before he has a chance, Eliza goes, he does insist. And he nods and goes, as the lady says, and kind of reaches like wincing a little bit towards his side table and grabs like his coin purse and uh, opens it up and uh, hands each of you 20 spurs. It- it's not enough to truly pay you back for what you've done, but... I'd give my life for Miss Valancourt, and uh, I'm glad none of us had to. That's all thanks to you. Well, you are very welcome, Mr. Davies, I say, as I take these 20 spurs in my hands that are cuffed. <laughs> he notices it, but doesn't, doesn't raise the point. <laughs> uh, but he, he like also doesn't like scowl at you or anything. He's, this is the nicest he's ever looked at you. <laughs> nah, he's on a lot of morphine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you get some good rest, and uh, in case you need anything after we leave town, here's my LRC call sign. He takes it. Of course. Thank you. And then behind you, uh, uh, loudly from the door, well, you know, uh, I think visiting hours are about over. How about uh, we limit it down to one person in here before we, uh, we have a fire hazard with the amount of bodies crammed in this small little clinic of mine? The very, very stern-looking old... Uh, Dr. O'Donovan uh, sits there looking at you guys. Well, we're much obliged for your patience and your help, Doctor. Let's just get out of the way. You should really be thinking about expanding. You know, I'm sure with uh, the mayor's generosity, she might chip in and help you out. And I get like real close to him as I scooch by and then I walk out the door. 
He like kind of recoils at you as you get close. Like, ah, that, fine. <laughs> Rumor, crumble, crumble. <laughs> I say goodbye and I take my leave. As you're getting ready to uh, take Roy away, Eliza rushes up to him and like kind of uh, puts a hand on the on the cuffs and says and looks to you, uh, Clayton, and says, "Now don't you go taking Roy Hampton out of town without at least letting him say goodbye to me, sir." I think we can work something out. Uh, I will wink at Eliza, and I would like to uh, stealthily slip her my LRC call sign. <laughs> <laughs> you you slip it. No one seems to notice as you slip it into her hand, and she she uh, grins and blushes a little bit as she as she palms it in her hand, and then she kind of steps back from you, and Clayton guides you out of the room. Hey, uh, fellas, I gotta run over to the LRC tower and, and check if there's any messages for me. I thought then we might head over to the, the mayor's office, uh, see if we can't potentially get a little bit more cash on us from a, a bounty, maybe, for Charlie Walden. Sounds like a plan to me. Sure, I guess I could uh, check my messages. So you guys walk up the North Strip, past the Free State Bed and Brew, both a brewery and and a hotel. Um, and the multi-denominational church of Waypoint, which multi-denominational churches uh, are actually relatively common across Manifest, um, though the average church of this style usually only has two to four religions. And you can always tell by looking at the outside. Uh, it's a, They're usually large, rusted, copper-domed um, buildings with little icons from the different faiths that are practiced there, that have preachers there. And uh, most most multi-denominational churches have two to four religions that have preachers there. Uh, but the Church of Waypoint is uh, an outlier to this with dozens of religious idols on display, um, probably due to the fact that there's so much traffic to and from Waypoint as one of the only places the high-speed rail stops by besides factory towns. Then you enter the main square of Waypoint, um, which... Uh, has staircases leading up to the uh, to the high speed rail station, and those stairs are right next to the LRC tower. And then nearby the LRC tower is the Turnpike Inn and Brothel. And uh, uh, across the way on the other side of the uh, of the square is the Golden Spike Saloon. And you walk up to the LRC tower. Uh, I hand him my LRC tag. See if there's anything for me, and also general messages. Uh, so you hand him the LR, you hand him the LRC tag. He slots it into his console, and he says, "All right, uh, you can uh, go ahead and use Terminal Three. Uh, this is one of the better LRC towers around. It has um, public access terminals on the outside of it, which are kind of like uh, little stations where you can access your LRC messages and uh, and check public LRC notifications, and then also uh, send out messages, of course." And, um, one of the, one of the ones on like the front face of the tower lights up, uh, and it's, it's labeled terminal three. And he goes, if you don't know your letters, I can, I can peruse your messages for you. Uh, no, I, I can read. Thank you. And, uh, and I'll head over there and hopefully find a message for me. As was the case before you got on the train to San Cordero. You pull up your your direct messages that uh, are sent to your LRC call sign, and there's no new messages. <sighs> Shit, Cyrus, where are you? All right, I'll read anything 
I'll read all the general messages. If there ain't anything new or interesting, then I'll I'll, uh, I'll go meet up with the uh, everybody. Uh, there's weather reports, news reports, stuff like that, um, which is typical uh, for the general LRC, both uh, Badlands wide and and Waypoint centric message uh, notices. Then there's also uh, you see one thing that you see as you're like kind of like quickly glancing through them all. You you do see a, a message from Sheriff Fly of Waypoint um, uh, notifying all settlements in this area of the uh, of the Walden gang's activity, how they derailed a train and are operating in this area. So all sheriffs should be alert. Uh, Pete, did you come along with or are you? Yeah, I uh, I'll hand the guy my I search for a bit and I hand him my tag and just say anything for me. Uh, so you hand it to him. He slots it in. This is as Juliet's walking over to Terminal three and he goes, I, I can send this to, to Terminal two if you like. Uh, or if uh, you don't know your letters, I can check your messages for you. Yeah, I'll head on over to Terminal 2. No new messages directed to you, and you see the general same news that, that Juliet sees. Having checked it about three weeks ago and finding the uh, the message about his brother, and now is probably the most frequently he has ever checked his LRC messages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, uh, Clayton, can you, uh, can you reach into my back pocket there? It's a little tough to get at with uh, these here handcuffs. Should be an LRC tag in there. I reach in and pull out the LRC tag out of his pocket. And uh, you bring it up to the operator window? I do. He slots it in uh, and says, and gives you the same thing. He goes, need me to read it for you or transmit it to a terminal? Uh, terminal's just fine, thank you. All right, you'll be at Terminal 4, uh, which is just around the corner from where Juliet is. All right. Anybody trying to get a hold of old Roy Hampton? No, no direct messages from you. Uh, perhaps Eliza hasn't had enough time to compose an LRC message to you. Well, it's been all of four minutes, so I'll give her some yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> Do we know where uh, everyone was staying? All the people we led through the Badlands. Or Francis, Francis told you guys that they were that some innkeeps in town were like giving them free room and board at least for a little bit. And the only hotel in Waypoint that isn't also a brothel is the Free State Bed and Brew. Well, Pete, bed and brew does sound like the best option here, in my opinion. Sure. Nice cold one after our ordeal. Sounds really nice. Yeah, I agree. And let me just make one quick stop. And uh, Pete just runs into uh, just the nearby general store. So you pop on into Waypoint General, which is part shop and part junkyard. Simply standing outside the general store, you can actually see looming over behind it a large scrap heap uh, almost a junkyard with a big advanced crane kind of looming over it and it's made even more imposing in size by how kind of small the general store is in comparison and you you walk into the general store and it has a cluttered yet organized feel to it um it's crammed floor to ceiling with merchandise and the walls kind of feel like they're uh, on the verge of tipping inward on you. There's buckets hanging off at of end caps. There's wires and circuit boards that are thre threatening to pour out of shelves at any moment. And behind the counter, kind of adjusting these rudimentary lunchbox style first aid kits is a hunched over elderly man uh, with a simple cybernetic leg that kind of doesn't, it doesn't have a foot on it. It just comes down to a peg. And he is balding on the top. This guy is even older than the doctor was but only by a couple of years, probably. And uh, he doesn't seem to react when you walk in, even though the bell above you rings. 
I'm I'm walking amongst this just claustrophobic mass of wires and metal, and I just go, oh, fucking city folk. I, <laughs> I hate every step I take in this place. <laughs> sort of quickly walk up to the counter. Yeah, just uh, give me a rope. The shopkeep doesn't react again. He's like kind of humming to himself and moving the lunch boxes around. Um, um, excuse me, sir. Can you please point me to your rope? <laughs> uh, he doesn't respond to that, but like just like a, a second or two later, uh, he turns towards the front to like grab something out of a drawer and goes, ah, when he sees you and he jumps back <laughs> and that, that stack of lunch boxes he just made just goes clattering down to the ground. He goes, Jason, can to give me a heart attack? Uh, rope, please. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm hard of hearing. You're going to have to speak up, young man. I, uh, I take the lasso off my hip and point to it and just loudly, rope. Oh, yeah, rope. I have plenty of rope. I'd like some of it. <laughs> <laughs> he nods there for a second and then goes, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll get you some. <laughs> Great. And, uh, he goes he goes hobbling past you and you you watch as he kind of sits there and he's looking around and, and like all of these drawers are tagged with some kind of identifying code um, but it's too vague and unique to really be deciphered without context uh, but he seems to understand it because he looks at a couple tags and then and kind of steps back and looks up and he's and he like looks at a drawer that's pretty high up and then he brings over like a, a ladder and kind of shoves it against the thing and with his rickety peg peg leg on this on this old uh, ladder he steps up on it and the ladder kind of wobbles and he kind of wobbles and he climbs up like with more confidence than he should given how, how precarious this situation seems. And he reaches up and grabs the drawer and kind of has to tug at it a little bit to, to get it to pop out. And then he, uh, it like pops out and he kind of stops it from falling onto the floor and he kind of reaches his other hand up and like pulls around it. And then like he goes, Oh, and he kind of turns like, and like twists his body one leg coming off the ladder and says, how long a rope? Uh, uh, normal size. No, normal size rope. <laughs> Regular. Yeah, okay. Good, good, strong, strong rope. This, this should do you fine, man. And he, and he pulls, he pulls a, a bundle of rope out and sh- slams the shelf back into place and then kind of makes his way down the ladder and limps and hobbles his way back behind the desk and sets it down and says, that'll be four spurs. Okay. And, and I, uh, I sort of take four spurs out and I hold them out sort of uncomfortably. I'm not quite sure where the spurs go. <laughs> he, uh, he grabs all four of them and, and looks at them and then uh, still holding onto the rope and like kind of like eyeballs them a little bit. And then he lets go of the rope and goes, you enjoy your day, young man. And he puts two of the spurs in his pocket, one in a uh, can uh, on the desk and then opens up the register and puts the final spur in the register. Okay. He takes the rope and he leaves. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, Badlands Pete rejoins you guys. As we approach and go into Free State Bed and Brew, I just walk up to the bar and put a spur down and uh, ask for a beer. The Free State Bed and Brew is a two-story stucco building that's pretty wide, wide enough to accommodate uh, both the brewery, and the hotel. Uh, Though the front entrance is only on the left corner of the building, uh, which means you have to enter in on the brewery side of the the establishment. 
Um, when you enter, you are treated to an open space full of dining tables, and the bar is in the far back left corner. Uh, the ground floor actually opens up uh, uh, high and uh, uh, with like a, a small balcony over the entrance area uh, with more tables up there. And behind the bar, there is a glass wall that reaches all the way up to the second story ceiling that gives diners a full view of the polished machine-filled brewery behind the bar. And uh, to the right of the bar, there's a staircase that uh, leads up into the apartments and rooms that take up the other half of this establishment. And uh, you set your uh, money on the table, and uh, a gentleman turns around and goes, Howdy, what'd you like? I'll just... uh... Have whatever the special is, I guess. All right. One house brew coming up. And uh, for your uh, prisoner here, he says, uh, gesturing towards Roy. Uh, your finest whiskey, please. <laughs> All right. And he, he, he smiles at that and turns to Clayton. And he goes, that's going to be an extra two spurs. And then uh, <laughs> and then turns and uh, reaches up to the top shelf and grabs a bottle of whiskey. You want to turn me in for money? You're going to pay for my drinks. <laughs> I pull two spurs out of his pocket and set it on the counter. I pull two spurs out of Clayton's pocket. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Go ahead and roll Skullduggery. Clayton, you can roll Observe. I'm too busy feeling triumphant. (laughs) (laughs) It's very good. It's a lot of hits. (laughs) Yeah, Clayton doesn't notice a thing. You just slide two spurs out of his pocket and put them in yours. (laughs) Pay for your own drinks. Ah, no, you know what, Clayton? You're right. You got me. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, uh, the barkeep turns around, uh, sets a, a nice heavy poured whiskey in front of you, uh, Roy, and then goes over to the taps and pours uh, a nice dark amber ale for you, Clayton, and uh, sets it down. Uh, anything for the, for the rest of y'all? He says, gesturing towards Juliet and Badlands Pete, kind of like as they take their seats. I'll have a room for the night and two whiskeys. All right. I'll cost a spur. I'll put down a spur. One, please. One, one of what? He says, like, a little confused. Uh, um, uh, and he, he turns towards Clayton, who just got one. He says, uh, that, uh, that. Sure thing. Uh, you're going to be needing a, a key to a room tonight, or? Yeah, yeah. I guess. I get to, I, I. I have to stay in it. <laughs> he turns to Juliet and goes, I'm sorry, is your friend all right? Uh, he's fine. He ain't necessarily accustomed to staying in town. So, Pete, do you want to stay inside or do you want to make a tent outside somewhere? Yeah, I'll do the t- tent. Thank you. He, 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 looks at the, he looks at the bartender to confirm that. <laughs> bartender like sits there for a second and goes, that sounds fine to me, sir. <laughs> yeah pete pete as is obvious looks crazy uncomfortable the whole time you guys are in town he'll have a beer um on my tab that's fine oh he uh, nods thank you and uh gives both uh, serves both a drink to you and pete and you guys are all kind of just bellied up to this bar having a drink i'm gonna take the first shot real quick and then drink regular lack with the <laughs> the second one so where are you folks heading from here, I guess? Like, we should all collect on the bounty if there's one for uh, for Charlie. After that, I'm heading into the garden. I, I got a place I got to be. Um, 
uh, whereabouts in the garden you hidden? It's a. Uh, it's called Tanner's Gulch. There's a. There's a carnival there, and I'm. I'm. I'm fixing to go to it. There's a. I'm hoping to find Cyrus there. Oh, you know, I I only been to the carnival once when I when I was a youngin, but I, I did very much enjoy it. You know, me and Clayton, <laughs> we could go with you to that carnival. It sounds like a, it sounds like a grand time to be had for all of us at the carnival. <laughs> we need to be heading that way anyway to turn uh, Roy in. <laughs> it's true. Uh, with the LR, if if what Victor said is true, and the high speed rail is down. Uh, the connecting train to Glen Spire is going to be down and could be for as long as uh, a month, um, uh, maybe even longer. And and Tanner's Gulch is on the way to Glen Spire, just on the other side of the mountain pass. Uh, and Pete, where are you headed? Uh, probably not there. <laughs> you know, out there, I guess. And he sort of motions back west. Wait, that ain't real. You can go in the garden, right? I mean, why would I? But you could, right? We've established you're a real person. So, like, <laughs> and I finished my second drink. We've established that you're a real person. I point at, point, like, point at him with my finger. Like, <laughs> so you could go into the garden, right? Like, you could go there. You ain't spiritually tied to the Badlands so that you can never leave, Right. That's like not real. Is that a story you heard about me? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, so you rode an augurino. I get it. You're very like, uh, you have a mother. You told me her name. I can't. <laughs> I finished my third drink. You know, it'd be good if you could go into the garden because I feel like you could like go in there and then like use your legend to find my Cyrus. Juliet, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't think you need me to find your husband. I think you're going to do that great. You know what we should do? We should go collect that bounty. <laughs> we should stop being sad and get it together. Stop being so sad, everybody. We had a grand adventure, and and we should go collect that bounty. Uh, All right. And Juliet stands up, kind of like knocking, uh, knocking the stool. Not over but like kind of it wobbles around a little bit and she like kind of straightens herself uh kind of regaining her balance a little bit i'll ask the barkeep for a pen real quick and uh grab a napkin yeah he pulls uh he pulls uh out of his pocket uh, uh, a pen hands it to you uh and i jot something down and uh i hand it to juliet and i say here take this with you i'll, I'll meet you guys right there okay it's just up the hill a little bit got it okay i like you pete I like y'all a lot. It's been a lot of fun. Juliet gets up to leave. Badlands Pete is uh, is finishing his beer. Uh, Clayton and Roy. Well, let's go collect our share of the bounty. Yeah, I'll head out with Clayton. Uh, but before I, I make it out the doors, I'll turn back to Pete. I know what's happening. Turn back. I'll just give him a nod, and then head on through them doors. He uh, he'll nod back. Uh, so you guys step out and turn to the right. Walk down. Uh, down that strip and then turn right again and start walking up that uh that hill towards where the mayor's office is. Badlands Pete, what do you get up to? Uh I'd go to the barkeep. Hey, is there a is there a little kid here? He's got like short brown hair named Welby. Well Welby Wilson, is he around here? The bartender's face lights up and goes, Oh yeah, Welby. 
Hey, he's a, he's a cute kid. Uh, yeah, he, he and his brother uh, are staying in town. Are they here? Can I find? Can I find them? Yeah, let me talk to the desk up front. See if uh, see if I can ring their room. Uh, one moment, and uh, he steps out from behind the bar, goes up to like the front uh, desk nearby the uh, the staircase leading up to the apartments. Talks them a little bit. They uh, they grab like a receiver off the wall. Talk a little bit. Set it down, and he, the barkeep comes back and goes. Uh, yeah, says they say they're on their way down. Great, thank you. And there's a little bit of a wait. You're kind of sitting there, finishing the, your beer. It's good beer. Uh, and as it gets like kind of near the the bottom, uh, you hear Mountain Man, and and uh, you turn and Kate and uh, Kate is at the uh, bottom of the stairs, but Welby is jumping the last three steps to run down the run across the bar towards you, and he jumps up and hugs you around the waist. <laughs> hey there, kid. Hey there, Kate. He says, glad to see you made it all right. Same for y'all. Hey, Kate, do me a favor and take care of your brother. And then I uh, I sort of kneel down to Welby, and I take out uh, the rope that I had, which I have fashioned into a lasso. And I, I hand it to him, and I say, hey, Welby, I had one of these, and it has saved my life more times than I can count. You take care of your brother, all right? And I, uh, I'll hand him the lasso. He grabs the lasso and goes, I will. And then he immediately turns and tries to throw it on Cade, and it falls short. <laughs> Practice. And he laughs and runs up and grabs it again and, uh, and turns back towards you, uh, Cade. Uh, and you get like the image as you stand up, like, and Welby's kind of leaning against Cade. Cade's got his armor on Welby. Welby's holding on to the lasso. And uh, you see these two brothers together helping each other. And uh, uh, Cade smiles and says, thank you, Pete, for everything. Sure thing. And uh, he walks out. Uh, meanwhile, the, uh, the rest of you, you, you get to the mayor's office. Uh, the mayor's office is uh, one part offices and two part manor. Uh, as you walk into the lobby, um, you're, you are immediately see the arching staircase uh, up the center that leads up towards uh, the second floor, which has a couple stanchions with a velvet rope that bars entrance up to there to your left there's a room with a stone plaque that says judicial offices and to your right there's a similar plaque denoting that room as town hall and in front of you there is a desk with a receptionist uh he looks up uh smiling at you uh, and he goes good afternoon how can i help you we're here to see if there's a bounty to collect on for charlie walden uh i ain't charlie walden by the way (laughs) (laughs) He nods at the clarification uh, and goes, I'm, I'm sorry for the inconvenience, but typically the, the sheriff handles uh, uh, payouts of bounties. And then coming from the room to your right, you hear a voice ring out, Juliet Hunt, is that you? Is this Alex Graves? Yeah, uh, you, you turn to look and, uh, and you see walking down the center aisle of, of the room marked as Town Hall, uh, entering the lobby, uh, a woman about... 50 mid 50s in age uh she's got her uh her graying red hair uh pulled back into uh into a loose ponytail um uh, she's wearing uh uh stately but functional clothes uh and uh, she's got uh, a nice large shooting iron on her hip and uh her, her face is hard seen a bunch of sun uh, seen some sun and the way she walks you can tell uh uh she's She's got Drifter written all over her, even though she is holding the office of mayor of Waypoint. 
and uh, she she walks in, uh, grinning, and says, "What are you doing back in town?" Well, we were on the train that derailed and uh, brought them uh, civvies most of the way here, and then rescued another one. But you know, how are you? She smiles at that, uh, uh, walks up, gives you a hug, and says, "Good to see you. All right. I should have known. You know those." Those folk come into town talking about a couple of drifters uh, saving their neck up there in the mountains. Uh, of course, you'd be involved. Uh, how about we go talk in my office? These your friends? Yes. This is a legendary outlaw, Roy Hampton. And uh, and this is Clayton Sawyer. Um, pretty good outdoorsman and bounty hunter. This is Alex Graves. She's mayor of Waypoint. We go way back. The receptionist speaks up saying they were just looking to collect on a bounty. Uh, uh, I was directing them to Sheriff Fly. And she goes, nah, we don't need to bother Malcolm with this. Let's go ahead and uh, talk my office. I can pay out a bounty. She gestures for you guys to follow her to a door that's to the the right of uh, the staircase, kind of like inset in the wall, like uh, halfway along the length of the staircase. And um, uh, you guys walk in uh, to a nice... Modest uh, office with nice mahogany desk, several books, and uh, a very fine decanter, and also a little safe in the corner, uh, which she walks up to and starts uh, starts turning the dial on. And uh, she says, uh, go ahead, have a seat, gesturing to the couple of seats that face the desk. I take one of the seats. Don't touch nothing. Uh, she goes, so uh, uh, who's this bounty for? I, I, ain't, I ain't got no posted bounty for uh, Roy Hampton. Uh, actually, uh, for Charlie Walden. She, uh, clicks the safe open, doesn't swing it open, just, uh, unlocks it. And then she turns around and goes, no shit. I heard about the Walden gang. They've been causing a, a whole mess of trouble. I think last time I saw his bounty, it was, uh, sitting around 250 spurs. Well, that's a pleasant surprise. Well, typically for a bounty like this, we like proof of death. But, uh, honestly, Juliet, you say you shot him dead. I, I bet you did. Uh, and she uh, reaches into the safe. Uh, you hear the clicking of some spurs, and she says, "So uh, this uh, this here, Mister Hampton, uh, sees and binds and all. Hope you're not looking for a pardon, Mister Hampton. Uh, your bounty's not with me, so I ain't got that authority. These people got you in chains for something uh, in the garden, perhaps." Well, uh, the situation's evolving. And, uh, I hope to reach uh, a, you know a more agreeable setup. Uh, in time, uh, I appreciate you thinking of me, uh, but I will take my, my third of those spurs if that's all right. <laughs> uh, she sets a, a sack of spurs on the desk, shutting the safe, and she turns to you kind of grinning, Roy, and he goes, well, you know, everyone knows there ain't, there ain't nobody with a softer heart than a bounty hunter and a gunslinger, so I'm sure they'll see your side of the story. Uh, I give her my best winning legendary outlaw, Roy Hampton, smile, and I just say, I appreciate that, Mayor. And I take this big old sack of spurs. <laughs> <laughs> you guys watch as with the with the pure gall of Roy Hampton, he reaches out and grabs all one two hundred and fifty spurs in that bag and starts sliding it over to him. I uh, pull the I pull it out of his hand. Perhaps I should hold on to your share too. Well, Clayton, if that's what you think is necessary, I understand. Uh, you say that, and and you 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 catch the eye of uh, uh, Mayor Graves, and she gives you like a, a like a, a con- almost not quite condescending, but kind of a, a playful like good job, like mouths that, and almost gives you a thumbs up. <laughs> I'll wink at her. 
Is there anything else I can help you uh, help you out with, Juliet? Uh, you haven't perchance seen or heard tale of uh, Cyrus, have you? She sits there and like that playful smile she has as she's been toying with Roy, uh, lingers for a minute. Like she's about to like give you some kind of some kind of joke, but then she kind of sizes you up and and sees the slight betrayal of desperation in your eye when you ask the question and she kind of sobers up her look and goes no honey sorry i ain't is he in some kind of trouble he disappeared and he has my guns with him and she finally like glances down looks at your your the guns on your hip and and she raises her eyebrow and she goes well hell cyrus is a lot of things but he wouldn't he wouldn't just take those guns from you for no reason and uh it's been i don't know like a month almost so I'm out looking for him. If you see him, tell him to stay put. Would you arrest him? Actually, just arrest him. It's fine. Just, <laughs> just throw him in jail. Hit me up on the LRC. Send me a message and I'll come get him. That'd be great. She kind of grins at that and goes, <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I'll, you know, I got connections as far as the Badlands goes, different uh, settlements around the area. I'll, I'll hit up the Confederation and see if uh, anyone's seen him and, uh, I'll send you an LRC if he's if he's poking around the Badlands. It's not like he really knows how to keep a low profile. That's what I said. So I don't <laughs> know where he is. And then I, I expect we chat for a short period of time before I, I have to use the restroom. <laughs> and then we leave. All right. And uh, you guys step out of the mayor's office. Uh, you look around and Badlands Pete, do they find you there? Uh, nah. He's, uh, well, he's out there. Out in the Badlands. Uh, so you guys step out. You don't see Pete anywhere. He could be back at the uh, Free State Bed and Brew. Well, let's go find out. Uh, you guys go back, pop into the Bed and Brew. Uh, bartender kind of shrugs when you ask him. He goes, uh, that fellow you was with? He left a, just a, a little bit after you did. I'm sure he's running his own errands. What do you say we have a restful night? You know... Some sleep will be good. Plus, he's sleeping in a tent anyway. So, yeah, I'm just gonna go up to my room and I'm gonna I'm gonna sleep. All right, and uh, you guys have a restful night at the Free State Bed and Brew. Their rooms are, you know, not sp- not super large, but spacious enough, uh, and have comfortable beds, clean sheets, which is uh, more than you've had for quite some time now. <laughs> Um, but nothing eventful really happens in the evening. Clayton and uh, Roy, I assume you're sharing a room. Yeah, but because I'm all about security, I keep that handcuff key secure on my belt. All right, I'll wait for until Clayton is like deep asleep, you know, like two hours or so. And then uh, I'm going to get out of these cuffs and uh, sneak out this window here. Yeah, you don't even need the key that's on his belt. You proved that by picking the lock with a knife earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so you can you can remove your cuffs. All right. I will gently place them on the nightstand. They're, they're very nice manacles. Man shouldn't lose the manacles. Uh, now I'll head out the window, uh, and I will think to myself, if I was a rich heiress obsessed with danger, <laughs> where would I get a hotel room for the night? And I head to the Golden Spock Saloon. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh you you walk through waypoint uh 
The Golden Spike Saloon is still open uh, and still has a pretty hefty amount of business, even uh, even into the evening. It has a fine wooden patio with half-shuttered windows. Uh, the interior is a very inviting, deep reddish brown, or has very inviting, deep reddish brown wooden floors and warm white walls. The front half of the ground floor has several round tables and booths for patrons to sit at, as well as a, uh, a long, well-stocked bar on the left side. The right wall has a staircase that leads up to the second floor, which seems to have a few rooms available with doors that kind of overlook the main saloon. Uh, the back half of the ground floor is slightly raised, but is underneath that area where the rooms are, and... Uh, it houses a smattering of games of chance, and it has a windowed back office where you see some guests turning in uh, their chips to receive spurs. I will head to to the bar, and I will inquire about Susan Taylor first. Uh, you walk up, and uh, uh, you try to like wave down the barkeep. He like nods to you, but he's serving some drinks. Uh, it's pretty packed in here, and you kind of look around the room, and uh, you catch a glimpse of pale blue. When you crane your neck to look through the crowd, you... Uh, uh, see Eliza Valancourt leaning up uh, against uh, one of the dice tables. Uh, I will make my way over there and I will place uh, uh, place a bet. You you slide up uh, across from her right as she rolls the dice and the crowd cheers and uh, some spurs get shoved over to her and she looks up and her smile just gets bigger seeing you leaning up there. Uh, no cuffs and uh, no cuffs on your wrist. Uh, yeah, and I will, if we flirt, I bet, I make some money, I lose some money, uh, I spend a lot of the evening, uh, in her hotel room at the Golden Spock Saloon. Yeah, after, uh, a good amount of betting and furtive glances, uh, she orders you a drink, cashes out, and, uh, like, walks to the stairs and just, like, looks at you expectingly. Oh, well, I follow. And yeah, you guys uh, go up. Uh, it seems like she's got a different room from Victor Davies. If you had to, or if you had to make a guess, Victor's staying at the Free State Bed and Brew. Uh, and uh, very early in the morning, I will I will get up, and I'll very gently wake up uh, wake up Eliza, and I'll say, "I'm so sorry, Miss Valancourt, uh, but I I have to be off. Uh, that was lovely. I hope to see you again soon. I'll give her a little kiss on the cheek." And I will slip out the window and climb back into my room at the Free State Bed and Brew and put my handcuffs back on and climb into bed. <laughs> <laughs> and about five minutes later, Clayton uh, uh, wakes up, sits over. Clayton, you look over. There's your prisoner right where you left him. I wake up, stretch, uh, go to the, use the restroom and wash my hands, kind of splash some water on my face. And... uh I go to wake up Roy because I'm sure he's hungry after a long night of sleeping. <laughs> yeah, uh, you kind of kick his boot, and Roy, you wake up, quote unquote. What? <laughs> what? What's five more minutes? What's going on? Five more minutes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want breakfast? Uh, uh, no, nah, you're right. I should. I'm hungry. Let's get let's get breakfast. Uh, <laughs> real quick before we move on. Uh, I do think I bypassed a locked door, uh, when we entered <laughs> Ms. Valancourt's hotel room. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I think I navigated a dangerous situation without being seen by the important party that made it dangerous, uh, Mr. Clayton Sawyer. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs>
And uh, Juliet, you wake up and you kind of sit up and the sun's a little too bright and you kind of glance over. You see your gun belt hanging on the banister next to you. And uh, on the nightstand, there is a crumpled napkin with some writing on it that you remember you uh, received from Badlands Pete yesterday. Oh, yeah. Uh, I open it up. What does it say? It says uh, LRC Peter EDW. My brother set it up, and I don't check it too often, but uh, if any of y'all need me, I can be there. Badlands Pete. Well, hell. Thanks, Pete. I say to not Pete, because he's not there. <laughs> uh, and uh, I I guess I'll get up and do my evening routine of cleaning my guns, because last night I did not do it very well. And then I'll get up for breakfast and uh, meet the lads downstairs. Yep. Uh, Free State Bed and Brew uh, has uh, quite a fine uh, complimentary uh, breakfast, uh, little buffet set up next to the bar. Morning, Juliet. Uh, morning. Y'all doing all right? Oh, yeah. We both got plenty of sleep last night. That's good, because uh, we're going to have a... If you're still coming with, uh, it looks like it's just the three of us. Um, Pete's uh, left already, and uh, we're going to need uh, that energy to head over the mountains. Well, that's a shame. He's a good fella. But I guess if he's got his own path to travel... Can't hold it against him. I finish up breakfast and uh, I head to the stables to get sugar and get ready for the journey ahead of us. Yeah, it's a pretty hefty journey. There's uh, safe trails along the mountains uh, that will connect you to where uh, to where Tanner's Gulch is, but it will still be a pretty long journey. Uh, do you guys grab any extra supplies in town before you uh, hit the road? I think so. I think... Um... I think we'll get some machinery cubes. I know that I want like maybe one tech cube just in case and then some first aid cubes and uh, basically going to see what they have and then and then go from there. Rations, of course. So as far as Badland settlements go, uh, Waypoint has uh, a pretty wide breadth of, uh, of supplies. Uh, the general store uh, has all sorts of crafting supplies. Rose blacksmithing owned by uh, uh, the talented Loretta Rose uh, can make pretty much any kind of weapons and armor you need. Uh, yeah, you guys can uh, stock up fully uh, on on supplies before you go. Um, strangely, uh, before you leave, Clayton, if you try to uh, arrange a meet between Eliza Valancourt and Roy Hampton, since she did request that you let her see him one more time before you leave, uh, it's, it appears... Eliza and Victor left early this morning. They had arranged with a, a pilot in town to fly them to the garden. <laughs> and so you, you look around and, and strangely, she's not there, uh, despite the fact that she said she wanted to talk to Roy. I held up my end. Sorry, Roy. Ah, well, ain't that just how it goes, Clayton? Then you guys uh, all stocked up and ready for the journey. Uh, go up to the DeCastro stables uh, and... Uh, you uh, come up and Zachary DeCastro is there. He's talking with a, with a young boy and he sees you coming and he goes, all right, go on, uh, uh, check on that, uh, check on that lot. I'll, I'll be right behind you. And he comes up and the boy says, sure thing, pop, and goes uh, running to the back. And uh, Zachary steps out into the street and goes, howdy, uh, leaving so soon, eh? Yep. Is Sugar all right? Oh, she's great. 
Hell of a beast. A bit playful, too. I like her. Yeah, sometimes she does play. She does get a little too excited and plays a little rough. She had a, a hell of a time uh, running around in the back there. Uh, you, you, raised a, you raised her nice and good. I can tell. She's loved. And then he uh, uh, lets out a whistle. And through the open, uh, uh, through the open pen, uh, sugar uh, comes to a stop. Hey, girl! Did you have fun? She rushes up and kind of nuzzles against you. Uh, uh, you know, anyone else might be a little worried about you getting gored by the horns, but she nuzzles up and the horn kind of like slaps into like your collarbone, and like she kind of pushes against you, and you have to like hug her whole head. Uh, and she says, "Y'all leaving together? Then you want me to get Sadie too?" If you could, please. Uh, he steps back into like the kind of pen and, and opens up uh, a pen that Sadie's in. And uh, she comes uh, trotting out and he like saddles her for you. Hey, uh, you guys happen to buy vehicles? Uh, yeah, sure do. All right. I just picked up this hover bike and it beats the hell out of my motorcycle. So I'm looking to sell my motorcycle. <laughs> he looks around and he goes, uh, and your your motorcycle, whereabouts that? Uh. I'm actually going to guess it might be in your garage. Some refugees, I loaned it to them. They brought it. They rode in on it. And a voice calls out from the garage. Oh, yeah, you're Roy, yeah? Uh, that's me, Roy Hampton. Uh, and uh, uh, another man comes out, Dalton DeCastro. Uh, he's he's wearing like a smock like uh, with a bunch of tools in it. And uh, his hands are kind of covered in engine grease, but he's wiping them clean. Uh, he's got dark brown hair, uh, uh, dark skin. And uh, he brushes some sweat from his brow. And he goes, yeah, uh, that, uh, that teacher uh, uh, dropped off your bike before, before he left town. He paid uh, quite a hefty fee in, in case uh, it took a while for you to get back in. Uh, I'm happy to refund you for it if he's a friend of yours. Uh, you know what? You keep it. This town did a good turn helping those folks out. Uh, but I would happily sell you the bike. Uh, sure. Uh, it's got a it's got a couple modifications on it. Uh, I could do you twenty spurs for it. Uh, I will happily accept, and I will hold out my cuffed hands to shake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he shakes and he goes. Uh, is this a uh, is he working for a bond or something? Am I giving you his money? Oh no, that 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 goes to me. Uh, uh, it's a it's a complicated situation. Don't worry about it. I've seen all sorts. And he uh, he pulls out a uh, uh, coin purse and counts out twenty spurs, hands them to you. And he goes, pleasure doing business with you, Roy. Uh, you as well, Mr. DeCastro. And uh, with your mounts in tow and 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 uh, Roy on his new hover bike, perhaps? Does he get uncuffed for this? All right, Roy. We're heading back out from civilization, so I don't think you need these on you. And uh, I take off his handcuffs. Plus, it's going to be kind of hard to ride a bike with... Your hands tied up. Yeah, Clayton, we're gonna we're gonna have to talk on the road. I don't I don't really understand where you fall on on this line, but you know we'll get into it and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Clayton hops on Sugar. Juliet hops on Sadie. Roy Hampton uh, uh, hops on his brand new hover bike, and you guys start heading into the mountains uh, uh, to follow the trail to Tanner's Gulch in the garden. And that's where we'll end our session. This podcast has been brought to you by ENPC Productions, all rights reserved. The Essential NPCs podcast is affiliated with and specifically approved by Tommy Cotton. Manifest, the RPG, is property of Tommy Cotton, all rights reserved. 
For more information, go to www.manifestherpg.com.